Welcome to episode 170 of the first 40 miles. If you're new to backpacking or if you're hopelessly in love with someone who wants you to love backpacking, then this podcast is for you. We'll talk about the essentials, how to lighten your load, and how to make the most of your time on the trail. I'm your host, Heather Legler. And I'm Josh Legler. And this is the first 40 miles. Today on the first 40 miles, we took off for 24 hours to enjoy a little Northwest winter backpacking trip. We'll share our top five experiments and our brush with death. And if you've ever wondered how to start a fire after a soil-drenching rainstorm, we'll show you what worked for us. Then we'll give you a hack that will make your winter fires burn cleaner, hotter, and more efficiently. All this, and that's about it. Today on the first 40 miles. So back in episode 167, Josh and I got together in our backpacking room and decided to plan a little winter backpacking trip. So we gathered some supplies and made some tentative plans. But one of the things that we didn't plan was food. And so we were kind of thinking maybe I would be in charge of the food, which I ended up putting together everything that we brought with us. But we took this as an opportunity to dump out our bucket o calories. And we talked about our bucket o calories way back in episode 38. It's a big box that we keep all of our backpacking food in. And as you can imagine, over the years, it fills up, gets depleted, fills up, gets depleted, and then things end up at the bottom of the box that never get used or that never should be used. So anyway, we dumped out the box on the kitchen table, and here's what happened. All right, you ready to dump? Oh, dumping, okay. I think we're just going to dump it and sort. All right. Here we go. Ooh. Clear off a big enough space on the table. Yeah, I think so. We have a few packages of loaded baked potatoes. We have Betty Baker quality pasta macaroni and cheese dinner. This looks like a Dollar Tree special. It is. I bought that. <laughs> um, I bought that right before the Trinity Alps trip. Okay. Uh, so it was just a few months ago. We have some jalapeno star kissed tuna creations. That looks like something. Something that I bought right before the uh, <laughs> Trinity trip, probably. Hmm. What else um, do you find? How about this tortilla? Oh my goodness, there is a tortilla. It's a flour tortilla inside a bag with some tuna that hasn't been opened and some real mayonnaise packets. I bet that I may have put that together before the Trinity Alps trip. Either that or the, um, the Three Mile Lake trip back in the summer. Wow, this says a lot about tortillas. Flour tortillas really... I don't know what they put in them, but they last forever. It's a little stiff, but not completely dry. And I don't see any mold or anything on it. No. It smells like a tortilla. The question is, can we make a weekend of backpacking meals out of what is on this table? Uh, I think so, definitely. Uh, yeah. We have entire meal packets. If nothing else, we might need to grab some stuff from the pantry to go with it. But Yeah, for sure. We've got some rice sides here from Noor. This is white cheddar queso. Uh, this Bear Creek garlic and herb pasta mix. That was a recent purchase. So this box isn't as scary as I thought it would be. I really thought we would find some 
Uh, we probably will find some things like that tortilla <laughs> just a little further the tortilla down. Tortilla has been the worst thing so far. I think the way we dumped it, the new stuff ended up on top. Maybe. Ah, well, we have some of these seasoning packets. This is like a, a taco seasoning packet, a chili seasoning packet. There's fajita. Uh, we have this tangy tomatillo salsa mix from Be Ready that we haven't tried yet. Yeah, we also have some of the roasted red salsa. I think for dinner we should do some kind of cheesy, salsa-y, jalapeno rice thing. Sounds good to me. We have the Velveeta cheese sauce. Alright, well I think we've done enough damage here. We have our dinner planned out and I think I'll just kind of rummage through everything else and make sure that we can plan a lunch and a breakfast just with what's on the table so we can actually use up some stuff that's in our bucket of calories. Yeah, and that's all we need other than some snacks to bring with us. It's just a quick overnight trip. Yep. All right, high five. We're going to eat. Well, I don't know how this happened, but we picked the perfect weekend to go backpacking. The skies were clear. It was warmer, like absurdly warmer than normal for the end of January. So we were able to get out and we recorded our top five list, the top five experiments of our winter backpacking trip on the trail. Josh and I are out here on the trail today. We managed to get away for the weekend and come to our top secret family backpacking spot. But this time it's just Josh and me. The kids stayed home. Our daughter is old enough uh, where we can start doing that. And I feel kind of guilty even calling this our winter backpacking trip because the weather has been glorious. It's been dry, it's been warm enough, and it's beautiful out here. Everything is fresh. It feels like maybe the end of spring. The sun came up shining this morning. It's, uh, it's amazing, but it's so wet out here still <laughs> because we had a huge rainstorm come through the day before yesterday, and it just got everything soaked. So even though it was quote-unquote dry yesterday, I had my rain pants on while we were walking through the ferns. Yeah, those ferns were loaded with moisture and dew, raindrops, whatever. They were wet. Yeah, so it's still winter, but it kind of feels like it's not <laughs> in some ways. Today we're going to talk about the top five experiments of our winter backpacking trip. We had a few things that we wanted to test out that were a little bit different from what we've always done in the past. And so they are experiments, but spoiler alert, they were big successes. And I'm really happy about that. Oh, man, now they don't even need to listen to the rest of this top five list. Be <laughs> so like, sorry. oh, everything worked. Fast forward. <laughs> Success. <laughs> Skip to the backpack hack or the Summit Gear well, Review. Whatever's or next. <laughs> whatever we do. <laughs> So what was the number one experiment? Well, the first experiment was switching up the routine. It's winter time, and we just don't get out in the winter very much. And I think it was about a week ago you said to me, hey, how about for date night next Friday? Let's make it a backpacking trip. We'll just take off after the kids get home from school, we'll just go overnight. We'll go to our family backpacking spot because we know right where it is. It doesn't take long to get there. And uh, just spend the night and come back. And there was something about that that just made everything so exciting. <laughs> I, I ended work just uh, maybe an hour earlier than usual. It was easy to get packed for the trip. And it was just so exciting to be like, well, this is just a regular Friday in the wintertime. 
And we're going backpacking. And it was kind of a no pressure backpacking trip because we're about half an hour from home. The trail's only a mile and a quarter. It's a place we've been to a lot. And so it's really familiar. We know where the water is. We know where the flat spots are. And so, you know, in that way, it wasn't really an experiment, but just taking off on a Friday by ourselves. Kind of a spontaneous backpacking trip was really exciting. And it's been great out here, even though we hiked in in the dark. We did. We got to the trailhead around dark, and then it got darker and darker as we were hiking up the trail, but we didn't pull out our headlamps, and we made it. I mean, it was, what, a half hour of hiking, maybe? So no big deal. Yeah, and then Josh set up the tent while I got dinner ready. Josh put up the Luma noodles, so we had our camp area kind of illuminated. It was magical. It was really beautiful. And speaking of dinner... How did that go? Rummaging through the (laughs) bin, we were kind of experimenting in terms of what we brought with us. Yeah, we dumped out the box and found some viable options that all kind of fit the cheesy Mexican rice theme. And so we boiled some water last night and added it to some instant rice. And then we had some black bean nuts, which are just dried out black beans. Yeah, those are in the trail grazing book. And they're so good just to snack on. But you can also add them to whatever backpacking meal, you know, whether it's freeze dried or homemade, whatever. You can add them to any meal and they'll rehydrate so nicely and they just add more nutrition to your meal and that flavor and the pop of color, different texture. So we added the black beans to the rice and then we added some fajita seasoning from one of those 50 cent packets from the grocery store. And then Josh had picked up this package of jalapeno Velveeta, which we went ahead and added to that too. Anyway, the concoction was so good and it was spicy, cheesy, creamy, cheap, fast. I mean, it was like the perfect backpacking meal. Yeah. And I was just expecting rice with cheese and seasoning. So when I discovered black beans in my rice, it was really cool. (laughs) And so the book Trail Grazing, it's all about trail food, the stuff that you eat while you're hiking on a backpacking trip. But the black bean, quote unquote, nuts are a great example of some stuff in trail grazing that's really multi-use. And so uh, that was just a, yeah, those were so good (laughs) in that rice along with the cheese and stuff. The cheese was something I picked up before the Trinity Alps trip last fall and never used. So this is just a concoction of stuff left over from previous trips. Well, the number three experiment from this trip was to try to start a fire after dinner. It was an experiment because we are in the middle of winter in Oregon, the day after a huge rainstorm. I mean, Thursday, it was just dumping like crazy at home. So I can imagine out here in the coast range, it had to have been at least that much water coming down. And we showed up yesterday It wasn't raining, but everything was completely soaked. Just like a sponge. I mean, that's how the ground is here. Just so soft and Mm -hmm. squishy. And we've had our fair share of fire building fails over the past few years where we go out in the wintertime and we just cannot get a fire going. In the summer, it's easy enough. Everything's dry. You pick up some tinder, light a match or a lighter, and everything just takes off. 
So yesterday evening after dinner with low hopes, low expectations, I started foraging around to gather some wood to start a fire. And one little cache, I guess, that I found was below this cedar tree. I found lots of those little cedar, um, how do you describe them? These things right here, they're all over on the ground. This is like the, the leaves of the cedar, except that all of the little leaflets have broken off and just left the spine. I guess that's the best way I can describe it. And I thought, well, these are wet, but I know that cedar is also oily. And so I'm going to bank on the fact that even though these are wet, they're dry and oily inside. It would have some good fuel. And the other thing I experimented with was uh, before the Trinity Alps trip, I bought a large fire starter. It's a Coglins fire disc. And I thought maybe if I've got a fire starter that really gives me enough time to dry out some tinder, maybe I can get this fire going. So between the Coglins fire disc and these little pieces of cedar and then other tinder and, and kindling that I found and gathered, I just started building this fire and crossed my fingers. I really wasn't sure if it was going to work. I try to be supportive. <laughs> I don't know if I tried very hard last night because I didn't have high hopes. And I already knew that we had super warm sleeping bags in our tent. So I was so torn between wanting to be just a good supportive wife and say, good job gathering all that wood and just going into the tent and diving under the sleeping bag. Yeah. So yeah, it was amazing watching this fire go from just nothing into a big enough fire that we were able to sit by it for a couple hours last night. Yeah. And that was great. Um, especially since we don't have any kids with us on this trip, that when you build a log cabin fire, <laughs> they're just designed to sort of keep themselves going as they burn over the period of a couple hours. The logs towards the bottom eventually collapse as they burn away, and the logs up at the top have then dried out, and they sort of settle down, and they start to burn. And once they go away, the ones above them settle and start to burn because they've already dried out. And and the fire just manages itself. We just sat there staring at the fire and talking and listening to a podcast. So the number four experiment of this winter backpacking trip was our sleep arrangement. This is something that we talked about in a past episode where we were packing for this trip and kind of figuring out what we were going to bring and one of the ideas that we had... That you had. <laughs> that I had was, you know how your feet are always cold, no matter what kind of sleeping bag you're in? It seems like feet always get cold. My idea was to scam some of Josh's warmth and share a foot box. So we would both have, this is kind of the idea that we decided on, we would both have our own sleeping bag, but we would share... The foot box space. So we would put one of the foot boxes inside of the other one and share that small space with our feet. And then we would have the rest of the sleeping bag to wrap around our individual selves. And I was pretty skeptical. We tried it at home and I was thinking, this is just a little too tight for our feet. Yeah, it works for a few minutes, but in the middle of the night, aren't I just going to become a little claustrophobic and be like, ah, let me out of here. <laughs> I need some space for my feet. So I was going into this barely willing to go along with you on this one. I think the only thing that made it so you were willing to go along is that we each had our own sleeping bags. And if we decided, no, this isn't working, we could just get inside of our own little mummy bag and zip it up. 
Yeah, I could always bail out. <laughs> yeah. But with this way, yeah, both of our sleeping bags were unzipped all the way. The foot boxes were kind of stacked inside of each other. And it ended up working well enough. And no, it did. It was, I mean, our feet were crammed in there, but our feet were warm. It was great. Yeah, I was barefoot and my feet were warm. And it wasn't only the shared foot box, uh, but it was also our choice to bring a zero degree bag and a negative 15 degree bag on this trip when it got down to what, about 45 degrees last night? Yeah. And it was perfect, actually. Yeah, <laughs> it's the best we've ever slept on a backpacking trip. So I think we cracked a code with this one that you really can't overdo it on sleeping bag warmth when it comes to uh, shoulder season backpacking. In the summer, we both agreed that there is a limit. Yeah. You don't want a heavy sleeping bag when you could get by with probably just a fleece blanket or something. But for anything under 50 degrees, I think that was what you said was your limit. Anything under 50, you could probably go with a really significant bag and be really glad that you brought it. That's my opinion. Yeah, I think so. I have overdone it on warmth in the past, and it's always been on warm nights. In the summertime, where it's a high of it in the 80s, and then at night it gets down into the 60s, and then you're in a tent, so it's probably a few degrees warmer than that, and so you're just below what would be like that comfortable 72 degrees. Then any amount of insulation around you on your sleeping bag is really going to keep you too warm. And even if you open it up, the sleeping bag underneath you is still too hot and sweaty and gets just kind of icky. But when it's in the 40s, guaranteed, you can open the sleeping bag enough if you need to, to let out the excess heat. No problem. But what was really nice was that we weren't like on the edge of comfort. We were like smack dab in the middle of comfort. Perfect. Great. Yeah, so great. Well, our number five experiment has to do with foraging for food. It's the middle of winter, so are we really foraging for food today? Well, today we were scouting out foraging for food. We've been learning a lot over the past few months. In episode 122, well, we called the episode Giving Up on Foraging, and we talked about how it just seems like even though we're surrounded by so much green, especially here in Oregon, out in the woods, it seems like there's nothing that we can actually use from all of that greenery to eat. Well, We've been learning. As you know, there were the mushroom hunting episodes the beginning of December. We sort of figured out mushroom hunting, and uh, that was a success. We, we just can't wait till next fall to hunt mushrooms again. Oh, and even this spring. Yeah, there's a few varieties that come up in the spring. Yep. So we're excited for that. And over the winter, we've been studying up on plants that are edible that we can find on our backpacking trips. And we're kind of like we have Fancy. this bottled up energy <laughs> just waiting for spring to come because we've discovered so many plants that are edible and in fact good that come up in the springtime. And in fact, a couple of weekends ago for date night, what we did is we uh, we sketched some of these plants that we want to try to find. We thought that would be a good way to get really familiar with what these plants look like. And so now we have them hanging on our wall by the dining room table. So today, even though it's not spring yet, we came out here to really scout out our family backpacking spot and figure out where we might be able to find those edible plants when spring and summer and fall come. And how did we do? I think we did great. We found salal, which is um, the plant that the salal berry comes from. We found lots and lots of Oregon grape. 
which I'm super excited about. I've heard it's really sour, but it's uh, it's edible. Um, and, and all this time growing up, and I mean, I'm in my 40s now, I assumed that both Oregon grape and Salal were either inedible or poisonous. Wow. And then there's a little creek not too far away where we probably will be able to find watercress. We saw some little shoots of leaves coming up, and we don't know what they are yet. So we're going to try to identify them. We're thinking maybe watercress. Yeah, and with plant identification, I kind of have the same rule as mushroom identification. I want to be 100% sure before I pop anything into my mouth. Yeah, so that's why we wanted to really scout things out on this trip, even though we know it's still winter, just to kind of get a sense of where we're going to be looking and what kind of stuff is already out here. Just get a sense of the terrain and, and the flora around our backpack as well. Right, and how prolific some of this stuff is. Like, there's Salal for miles. This place is just covered with Oregon grape. I mean, some of the things that we're looking for are going to be so easy to find in the spring. Yeah, and when fall comes, this is just mile after mile of Douglas fir forest. And that's where chanterelle mushrooms grow. We're going to have success foraging this year. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Good feeling about this. <laughs> and even last night as we were sitting around the fire, we were getting excited for acorns come next fall. We were listening to episode 22 of the Field Guides podcast. This is one of my favorite new podcasts. If you're interested in learning more about the natural world around you when you're out on backpacking trips, you got to check out the Field Guides podcast. The, the amount of detail that these guys go into, their names are Steve and Bill. It's just amazing. And it really opens your eyes to just, I guess, the interconnectedness of everything around us when we're out backpacking. Just things that you always took for granted or things that you never even thought about. Like sometimes you think that an animal's behavior is erratic or that there's no purpose to it. And they prove otherwise that there is so much order and organization in nature. It's eye-opening. This episode we listened to last night was all about acorns and corvids. Corvids are, uh, well, mostly blue jays and some similar birds to blue jays. And they were talking about the interrelationship and interdependency between oak trees and these birds that uh, both eat their acorns and also plant their acorns for them and, and distribute them. And uh, it's got us really excited for next fall because we live in a place with lots and lots of Oregon oak trees. And Oregon white oaks, their acorns have a low tannin content, so they're a lot easier to access and utilize than the red oaks. Yeah, I guess they're less bitter than the red oaks, too. Well, we're about to pack up. We're going to take down the tent and hike the long mile and a quarter back <laughs> out and the long half-hour drive to get back home. Anyway, thanks so much, Heather, for putting this trip together and inviting me to come <laughs> out here with you. This was just uh, just such a nice, refreshing switch from the winter routine. Yeah, well, thanks for coming. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> and in today's intro, I said something about our brush with death. We kind of did have a brush with death. As we were walking back from our campsite, we heard gunshots at the trailhead, which is not weird. It's, you know, BLM land, multi-use. People use that area for target practice all the time. And as we were coming back, the gunshots kept getting louder and louder. And it's really an unsettling sound, especially when you grow up in suburban America. You're just not used to the sound of bullets whizzing through the air. So when we finally could see the whites of their eyes and the reflection of their car windshield, 
I yelled out, hello, and they yelled back, we're not shooting anymore. <laughs> and uh, so we were able to make it safely to the trailhead. Yeah, it's a little daunting knowing that you're going to come down the trail into the downrange end of their target shooting <laughs> range. And so you have to somehow get their attention before you get within range of their bullets. Right. And they knew someone was up the trail because they saw our car there. And so they were shooting short range and they said they'd hiked up a ways to kind of check and see if there was anyone up there. But yeah, by the time we got down there, they were like, yeah, we were planning on stopping. It's kind of boring after a while. <laughs> So it all worked out. For today's Summit Gear Review, we'll be reviewing the Coglin's Fire Disc. As you've probably figured out by now, the first 40 miles doesn't have any show sponsors. We don't have ads because ads are super annoying. But if we did, it would sound exactly like this. Today's show brought to you by the Coglin's Fire Disc. It's the only thing we've found that burns long enough to ignite waterlogged logs. That is the truth. And they didn't even pay us to say that. But the Coglin's fire disc made it so we could build a fire out of waterlogged wood. The ingredient list on the Coglin's fire disc is really simple. Sawdust and wax. If you go to their website, you can read that it is cedar and highly refined wax. Yeah, so there's no NASA technology. Uh, it's just a good old-fashioned combustible buffalo chip. And the important thing is that there's enough cedar sawdust and wax that this thing can actually burn long enough to get a fire going when it's wet outside. That's why we took it with us. And even though it wasn't raining on our trip, it had been raining the week before, so everything was wet. Like, there was no way that we would be able to build a fire. At least that's what I thought. Oh, the day before our trip, I mean, it was just a downpour for most of the day. Everything was completely soaked. Well, how do you end up using the Coglin's fire disc? Because there's a couple different ways of using it. You can break it up or leave it whole. Yeah, I used it whole, but it can also be broken into pieces if you just need a little bit of something to get a fire started. Like in the summertime when everything's really dry, you might just use a little chunk of that fire disc. Or you can use the entire fire disc and it will burn for 30 minutes so you can cook a meal on it. However, it does produce soot, so whatever pot you use above the fire disc is going to get kind of black from usage. But, you know, if you're in a tough situation and you need something to heat up a meal, then it's great that it can also be used that way. And it works because it's big enough to really heat up a pot. It's not just going to be a little spot of flame in the very center. It's four inches in diameter. Yeah, and I would assume you can't put your pot right on top of the Coglin's fire disc. You'd have to somehow suspend it or, you know, stick it in between three rocks and then stick the fire disc kind of in the center. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we didn't end up using it to cook anything. We just used it to start a fire. That was our whole goal, just to get a fire that didn't die. For mass, the Coglin's fire disc, uh, as I said, is four inches in diameter. It's about an inch thick. Uh, what would you compare it to, Heather? Well, it looks like an uncooked ground beef patty. Oh, two or three of those. Two, yes. Several of them stacked up, but it's about, you know, an inch high. So it's a pretty significant ground beef patty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the uh, half pounder. <laughs> right. Well, actually, it weighs three and a half ounces. So I guess that makes it a quarter pounder coming in at about 100 grams. So in some ways, it's a heavy fire starter. 
I have a little quick fire fire starter in my 10 essentials kit that weighs, what, a half ounce or something? We've reviewed it on a past episode. It's super light, super small, but I was pretty sure that the quick fire just wasn't going to burn long enough for me to dry out some super soaked wood on this backpacking trip. So to me, the extra weight was worth it to have something I knew would burn long enough to get my fire going. So after you unwrapped the disc, did you use the little paper inside as like a wick or did you just dispose of all the packaging? You want to know what I really did? Yeah. Oh, what? (laughs) I just lit it all on fire. (laughs) I'm pretty sure some plastic is okay to burn. Yeah, they said you're supposed to remove the plastic. So maybe it's not okay to burn. So remove the plastic. Yeah. (laughs) This is definitely a side tangent, but it is kind of funny to hear what backpackers do IRL, you know, in real life, burning mylar granola bar wrappers and peeing on trees and not burying toilet paper. For the most part, I think we try to be as responsible as we can, but sometimes, sometimes we aren't. Yeah. We do the best we can. So anyway, that's all there is to it. You just light it uh, with a match or a lighter and let it start burning and it pretty much won't die until it's completely burned out. So that gives you about a half hour to build your fire. For investment, the Coglin's Fire Disc is just two bucks at really any store that sells camping supplies. I picked this up before the Trinity Alps trip last fall. I just saw it in the store and I was picking up a few extra things for the trip and I thought, huh, I wonder how that'll work. So I threw it in my pack. And on that trip, we had access to a cabin with a wood stove inside the cabin and a nice supply of dry firewood, both near the cabin and out in the woods. And it was just super easy to start a fire. So the Coglin's fire disc went to the Trinity Alps and back home to Oregon without being used. So when we were getting ready for our winter backpacking trip a couple weeks ago, I thought, aha, perfect opportunity. One of my experiments on this trip is just going to be to see if I can finally light a fire when it's wintertime and we just had a rainstorm. So the Coglin's fire disc burns for plenty long enough to get your fire going and for the tinder to dry out the kindling and the kindling to dry out the fuel. It was... Okay, I don't want to call it a lifesaver on this trip because we weren't that far from the car, but it's what you need if you want to have a fire with waterlogged wood. And we'll have all the info on the Coglins Fire Disc in today's show notes, which are at thefirst40miles.com slash 170. This brings us to our backpack hack of the week for today, and that is drying out wet wood. We had the Coglins Fire Disc. That was great because that gave me a half hour of buffer time to dry out wet wood. But still, everything that I collected on that trip was just soaked from the rainstorm the day before. So here's the hack I used for drying out the wet wood. Uh, Of course, I gathered all that wood. I lit the Coglin's fire disc and I put some of the wet tinder above that disc so that it could start drying out that tinder and then the tinder eventually burned. It was great that I found some of those pieces of cedar that are kind of oily. And once the water dissipated, they burned. And I had some kindling, just some really small sticks that I had collected. Put those above that. Those started to dry out. Those started to burn. That was good, but I could have been stuck in tinder and kindling mode all night 
if I didn't get some fuel on the fire. I mean, I would have just been running back and forth. Uh, I would have stayed warm, with, <laughs> regardless of how much warmth the fire put out. But I could have collected tinder and kindling all evening. And yes, I would have kept a fire going, but it never would have been the kind of fire that I could have just sat down and relaxed and enjoyed the heat. I had to get some wood, you know, some thicker wood dried out. So what I did is I built a teepee-style fire over the Coglin's fire disc with the tinder and the kindling. And as that fire started to grow, then I started building a log cabin around the teepee. The log cabin was the bigger chunks of wood that I'd found, the stuff that was an inch or two or even three inches in diameter. It was all waterlogged, but as I started to build the log cabin, then it, it put that wood nice and close to the fire so that it would start to dry out while the teepee was burning. And as the teepee eventually used up its very small, thin fuel, then it had already heated up and dried out the logs of the log cabin so that they could start to burn. And as I collected more wood, I just put it right next to the fire. In the summertime, I wouldn't do that because that wood would probably just catch on fire. It would be so dry and warm. But in the winter, being waterlogged like that, I was able to just have a nice pile of wood right next to the fire, some steam rising off of it as the water evaporated out, and as it got drier, then I could put it on the fire and it would actually burn. And there's an additional benefit of having that log cabin tight around where the fire is burning. Uh, not only does that allow the log cabin wood to dry out and warm up, but it also contains and reflects the heat of the fire within that log cabin. Instead of just dissipating out into the atmosphere, the heat stays where you need it, so then that heat builds up and everything gets warmer and drier. I even put some sticks on the top of the log cabin, which kept even more heat inside. You have to have enough um, gaps for the smoke to get out and for fresh air to come in the bottom, but that just concentrates that heat in that area where the fire is trying its best to get going instead of just having that heat, you know, just out into the air. But you want the heat to come out of the fire, right? So is this heat that actually builds the fire? Yeah, the, this is the heat that builds the fire as it's getting started ah. so that it gets to a self-sustaining level of heat. Once it's to that level, then you can sit back, sit next to the wow. fire, enjoy the heat coming out. It's wonderful. But at first, it's best to just keep as much of that heat in as you can so that you can get that critical you know, reaction going on. And once you have that critical reaction, then it warms up that damp wood, which means that wood will burn cleaner, hotter, and more efficiently. And we'll leave you today with a little trail wisdom from our good friend on the trail, Ian McHarg. Ian McHarg was a landscape architect and writer. And he was Scottish. Yes. He said, Where you find a people who believe that man and nature are indivisible, and that survival and health are contingent upon an understanding of nature and her processes, these societies will be very different from ours as will be their towns, cities, and landscapes. Sounds like less concrete, more trees. Mm-hmm. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you've been on a backpacking trip, share your story at thefirst40miles.com slash story. We'll see you next time on The First 40 Miles.
light this fire. Okay. Here we go. With Giga Power. Here we go. Okay, here it goes. Wow, let's make lunch. Okay.